I'm Karen Hay and this is the New Zealand Society of Authors Oral History Podcast where we dive deep into the archives to hear New Zealand authors tell their story of living as a writer in Aotearoa. Throughout this series there's been one name which has come up over and over, one person who has been blamed, sympathised with, maligned and misunderstood. Today we're going to hear his side of the history. Christian Carl Stead has been one of New Zealand's greatest literary figures for many years as a novelist, literary critic, poet, essayist and emeritus professor of English from the University of Auckland. His latest book, That Derida Whom I Derided Died, Poems 2013 to 2017, was published this year. Carl was deeply involved in the New Zealand Society of Authors for many years and yet is also famously no longer a member. Before Christmas in the year 2000, Carl sat down to discuss his history with the organisation. Michael King began by asking him about the very first days of the Penn Auckland branch. Well, my recollection is that um, Keith Sinclair was the first mover um, and Keith was the most vehement in... um, his feeling that at that time, and you have to realise it was, the, the picture was very different from what it is now, there were virtually no significant writers in Wellington, that most of the significant or important writers were in Auckland, and uh, PEN was the only formal access that writers collectively had to government. Uh, And so Keith simply felt, and I agreed with him absolutely, that we were being represented by a fairly undistinguished lot. I mean, later on, you have to realise that when when did actually the Auckland branch start? It was in the 70s sometime. It's mid-70s. Yeah. Yeah. You have to realise that, um, for example, I don't think Loris Edmund had published a book at that stage. Um, And Fiona was, was beginning to make a reputation. They're people who later became important in Penn. Um... Louis Johnson had long gone from Wellington. Baxter was sort of a movable feast. He was, he was all around the country, wasn't he? But the people who actually ran it were no doubt some very nice, but rather, in literary terms, undistinguished people. And Keith saw, thought that, um, really, I mean, I suppose he thought it should be a national body, but I don't think he thought that far ahead. He just thought that there should be a branch that could represent Auckland writers and could communicate their ideas and put some pressure on the Wellington group. And so he and I, um, Morris Shadbolt, I think, was involved. Is that right? Yeah. Um, Dave Ballantyne certainly was. Uh, Dennis McEldowney, Eric McCormick. And I think Frank came to one, Frank Sargent came to one meeting just to sort of give his blessing, but he made it clear he wouldn't have anything to do with it, really. Um, Alan Kerner, I think, wasn't interested, and Kendrick certainly wasn't. Kendrick, I don't think, was ever a member of PEN. Yeah, strange enough, he was when, after the 1951 Writers' Conference, when the younger group took control off the older group. Oh, yeah. You know, off Alan Muggle and Pat Lawler, mm. Kendrick joined then, but that was probably, you know, a moment of involvement which quickly passed. Yeah. There may have been some particular issue that had annoyed him, I don't know. But anyway, that was, that was what happened. And then what I chiefly remember after that was that the time when, when I was delegated to go down to a national 
meeting in Wellington, and at that stage there was an annual meeting, and anybody who was a PEN member could go, but of course there was no provision for fares or anything, so it was always the Wellington group who met. And there was a feeling that they handed out favours to one another, that they appointed one another to um, positions of judging literary awards and uh, when there was an overseas conference, um, you know, somebody from that group would be sent and um, so somebody had to go down to the, to the uh, national meeting and try and make this point, which I did, and it figures in, I don't know whether when Loris put together her autobiography, the three volumes into one, she changed it because I certainly took issue with it in a review. But she referred to this um, my coming down and saying they were all, I've forgotten what term she used, a term I never would have used Power myself. Crazy. Power crazed or something. Said, yeah. yeah, which I, I would never have said. But she, she presents this in her autobiography as though I'd popped out up from nowhere, said this apropos nothing whatever. Um, you know, she gives it absolutely no context at all. But it had this context of the feeling that since it was the only formal representation that writers had to government, that writers should be better represented on it. And the creation of the Auckland branch was then followed by branches in Christchurch and Dunedin and wouldn't have happened if the Auckland branch hadn't happened. So the fact that PEN is now, I mean, it could have gone on forever as it was. I think the fact that it is now a, a national body uh, is, it, is only happened because the Auckland branch got started. And, it, and the Auckland branch only got started because of that initial um, determination of Keith Sinclair that um, Auckland writers should be represented. Wellington Group, as a national executive, applied every year to the Literary Fund for money to help people travel from different parts of the country to meetings and that was turned down every year until Terry Sturm joined the Literary Fund mm -hmm. when suddenly that was accepted and it was at that point that the organisation actually had money to fly people in from the branches. Anyway, that's not yeah. relevant to what you're saying because what you're saying provided the stimulation for the Wellington Group to even consider the fact that if they were a national organisation... Yeah, and I, that's right and I think what... Um, uh, it's it's people or once they come to accept something they behave as though they always accepted it yes, yes. but in fact people who came to accept it were immensely resistant to it yeah. and regarded it regarded our attitude to it as as paranoid you know I mean they were so sure that they were representing us adequately that uh, any suggestion to the contrary was was a sort of Auckland paranoia yeah. Um, my recollection is that Fiona was always supportive. She was the only one who had any any sort of broader political sense. Uh, Loris had no political sense at all, except in the personal sense. You know, she didn't she didn't have the broader picture. Let's then talk about the Bloomsbury flat um, episode, yeah. shall we call it? <laughs> yeah. Just your recollections then of how it came to you, what you did, and what followed. Well, it began uh, simply with the fact that Fiona became aware of um, a house, I think it was a friend of hers who had a house on an island um, off the coast of Wakatani, I think it was. No, he were happy, yeah. Yeah. 
and uh, accessible by rowboat. And uh, this person wanted to sell the house, but he was he had a kind of romantic view of it as a place for artists, but he didn't want to give it away. And Fiona had the idea that the government might buy it as a place for writers. She put this to Michael Bassett, who was Minister of Internal Affairs. Michael Bassett called a meeting of a sort of representative meeting of writers who, for various reasons, happened to be in Wellington at the time. Um, and those who came included Fiona, Loris, myself, and I can't remember who else was there, but there were about six. Do you know? You haven't heard. So he, he called a meeting, and uh, he said, well, it was an interesting idea, and he wanted to... Um, do something for writers to celebrate 90, was it 1990? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so he wasn't, um, you know, he, as most ministers would have been, he, they would have been said, no, I'm sorry, we haven't got that kind of money. Uh, Michael was um, willing to listen. So he told the writers who were there to canvas the idea um, and ask whether they thought it was a good idea or not. And to report back, well, I assume that all the other writers at the meeting did that, and I did that, and almost every reaction I got said, well, be nice to have um, a, pl a place retreat for writers, but, you know, should it be way out in, in the, the countryside, or should we think about the towns, or should we think about overseas? And... Mostly people put the overseas thing as a kind of dream possibility that would never actually be achieved, but, you know, if it could, it would be better. So I reported that to Michael, and whatever the others heard, they reported to Michael. Michael started to think about Sydney, and he talked to me about that. And I, I mean, I don't know who else he talked to or what, but he t all I can tell you is that he talked to me. And I said that... Um, Kay's sister's husband was in Sydney. We knew Sydney quite well. He wanted somebody to go and, you know, look into the possibility of a flat in Sydney. So I went, well, later this became a story from Fiona that my brother-in-law was a real estate agent in Sydney and that I was going over there trying, trying to, you know, tout business. For in fact, my brother-in-law, or Kay's brother-in-law strictly, was the it was a maths lecturer and head of East Sydney Tech. He had bought he had bought land long ago in Beecroft, which he sold, and then he bought land in Balmain. And so I went over, and I did this so conscientiously. I took photographs. I brought back, you know, details from real estate agents. And uh, the flat could have been in Balmain, looking down Sydney Harbour wonderful place, getting to and from from um, Balmain by ferry. But by that time Michael had started to think about London and he s finally he decided to send me to London to check that out. Well, the thing is that um, by this time first of all, Fiona was furious because all she really wanted was that her friend's house should be bought and she never saw beyond that point. But the other was the reaction that that there was some kind of favouritism going on and that Michael was was favouring me. I'm not, I suppose they paid my fare to London, they must have, but if they did, that's all they did. 
and maybe a few basic expenses. But um, So I went there and I was to work entirely in, I wasn't given a free hand, I was to work in conjunction with the High Commissioner who was Bryce Harland at the time. So, I mean, it wasn't as though Michael said, go away and buy a flat in London. He said, see what the situation is and report to me through Bryce Harland and take Bryce to see anything that you're considering so he can confirm anything you say about it. So I did that conscientiously and Michael decided, okay, that's what he would do, he'd buy a flat in London. Um, now that flat at the current rate of exchange would be worth at least a million New Zealand dollars. Um, I think at the time the government paid 187 pounds for it, uh, 187,000 pounds, or it might it might even be less than that. But certainly the London property prices have gone, you know, would have doubled in yeah. price. So it was it was um, a good piece of property. It was a, in a wonderful position. It was uh, in walking distance. It was. Ridgemount Gardens, which is just in from Tottenham Court Road, so it had three tube stations nearby, Gooch Street on the Northern Line, Tottenham Court Road itself, and Russell Square. You could go, you could arrive at Heathrow, get on the Piccadilly Line and go all the way to Russell Square and walk to Ridgemount Gardens. And from there you could walk to all the theatres, you could walk to the British Museum, but it was back off Tottenham Court Road. It was in a small, one of those small side streets in a block of, mansion block of flats. It was, it was just a superb location. And, you know, the reaction of the writers' community was, to me, bizarre and, and self-defeating because by this time, Loris and Fiona had generated a huge a lot of, of um, resentment. I, I think essentially it was... It was the, whenever there's government involved and there's ministers involved, um, there's a kind of scramble among writers to be kind of blessed by ministerial attention. And, you know, that was just the feeling that Michael had, had um, favoured me. Whereas the way I view it is that he had got the person, the only, I mean, I was the only New Zealand writer at that time that I can think of who really knew London well. Um, where are we going with this? You better ask me a question. Oh, yeah, okay. so, all right. Um, well, what is your reaction of how? What, what is what is your recollection of how things fell apart, and how did you become aware of the fact that they were falling apart? Well, a group of writers made a statement, a public statement, uh, complaining about the way this had been done. I'm not sure whether this was before or after the decision had been made and the flat had been bought. I think it probably was. I'm Karen Hay and this is the New Zealand Society of Authors Oral History Podcast. We'll be back to the podcast in a moment, but just to remind you that through advocacy, professional development programs, information, competitions, awards and mentorships, advisory and consultancy services, the NZSA is the professional organisation for New Zealand writers to receive fair reward and the right to protect their copyright. As a representative body, the NZSA lobbies for the rights of all writers in New Zealand. 
Visit authors.org.nz to find out more about membership. Throughout this episode, Michael King has been questioning Carl Stead about the London flat controversy, which created deep scars and divisions in the New Zealand writing community. Carl had been remembering a public statement which complained about the process of buying the flat and his personal involvement. We return to the interview as Carl turns the discussion around, asking Michael whether he was one of the authors who stood against him. Were you one of them? No, I wasn't. Can, can I tell you, my attitude the whole way through was that we, we should take everything that there was an opportunity to get. Yeah. And if the Bloomsbury fact was top of the list, we should grab it. And if people still wanted a place in New Zealand, they should then lobby for that after the Bloomsbury fact was secured. Mm. So I was asked to sign that document and I, mm. I thought it was a typical example of the writing community shooting itself in, its, in, in the foot and, and probably producing the result which it did produce, namely mm. that we would have no, nothing at all. Yeah. I was very cross with Fiona and Loris in particular. Yeah. But you see, their attitude, I'm, I'm just telling you this by way of giving you something to respond to, their attitude, strange enough, was a little bit analogous to the attitude you were expressing previously about the Wellington executive acting without reference to Auckland. Their attitude was, how could Michael Bassett have sent you without conferring with the Society of Authors or other people in it that you were a person representative of the society? So the, the Wellington interpretation of what happened was that it was... Michael Bassett and one of his cronies doing this. Because mm. you know there was a lot of talk of cronyism. Cronyism, yeah. Um, and that was how they saw it, and that was one of the reasons they reacted. But the other stream, strand to it was that people like Whitty and Kerry Hume were actively intolerant of any suggestion that New Zealand writers should have a place in London. Yeah. Because they saw it as a kind of colonial cringe. Yeah. And I thought both those attitudes were, were not only wrong, but to express them publicly and to express any division within the ranks of writers would really just ensure that we finished up with nothing. And yeah. That's what happened. Yeah. Well, I see. I can. I. I think Michael's attitude was a, a practical one. That he made the decisions. He listened to the advice, and certainly he didn't only get advice from me. And if others who had the opportunity to give advice didn't, then that's you know their fault. But I imagine that he he listened to a number of people. But once he decided, I mean, first of all, he was going to do the Sydney thing, and that would have been quite good in itself. But once he decided that it should be London, what he did might have been undiplomatic in relation to the Wellington writers, and if he realised the need for diplomacy, he might have exercised more. But he was being practical in the sense that he knew that I knew London very well. And I mean, the way this was subsequently presented in, in a scurrilous a frontline program was that My Michael and I had were a couple of cronies who were jacking up a flat for ourselves in London. Um, I went into it with absolute enthusiasm, thinking how wonderful this is going to be for New Zealand writers. I didn't need a flat in London. I went to London every year, and I had all kinds of um, academic and literary connections there. I was never short of a place to stay, and mostly I stayed at London House at the London House Complex in Mecklenburg Square, which was why I was so aware of that area and, and the advantages of being there. So, I, I mean, you can't, London's a big place. You can't just send anybody. It's got to be someone who, who doesn't have to do months of preliminary work but knows what, it, what he's doing there. 
So Michael sending me was, <coughs> was entirely practical, and the result, the outcome, was very good. And you see, the other thing that really makes me angry, of course I personally was hurt by the reaction, but setting that aside, when I look at it, I still feel angry that Michael Bassett was a rare minister in that he wanted to do something for writers and spend a large amount of money on them. And that is so unusual. And he got, he not only didn't get thanks, he got abuse for it, you know. And I just think that, I thought writers are, are a pretty lousy lot, really, when they, when they act collectively like that, because he that does... That was also the year in which he was actively considering indexing the author's fund, mm. <coughs> when it was coming out of vote internal affairs, and he dropped that idea in the wake of the response to the yeah. business, because he felt legitimately, why am I trying to do anything for writers when, when they're abusing me? I know. It was, yeah. it, was, it was terrible. And then the final thing for me was that, that Bloomsbury flat... Um, thing on, on television because I was represented there as a person who, you know, was self-serving. And I, I wasn't, I was really enthusiastic about the thought. I knew that the problem with going overseas is not the fare, it's having a roof over your head. That costs so much. And that's what really makes it impossible. And this would have put a whole lot of writers who didn't know London in a position to learn it easily and comfortably and get the best out of it. It could have been beautifully um, worked in together, for example, with the Montong Fellowship, yeah. so you could have a few months in London, a few months in Montong. But you know why the colonial fringe uh, suggestion arose? <coughs> it was because of the word Bloomsbury. I know. There was, a, there was a suggestion that you had selected Bloomsbury because of the Bloomsbury Group Association. I know. I know, and that was the line that was taken in the in the television thing. They, 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 that was exactly the line they took. Of course, yeah. modern Bloomsbury is totally remote from... I mean, that was an example of, of literary ignorance, really. Uh, when you come up in the Russell Square tube station, you hardly ever hear English spoken, in the summer anyway. There are so many people from all over the world that are pouring into that part of London that, um, you know, English is a rarity. Actually, it shows how <clears throat> that move against it and against me and, and against Bassett was organised. There was a, a meeting took place in an office in the English Department of Victoria, which I assume is Vince O'Sullivan's office, and they were filmed going in and out of it. Now that means that they had already alerted television. The cameras were there to see them go in and out of the meeting um, of protest against this thing. So, you know, it was it was not um, it was not innocent in the way that it was uh, in the way it developed. But Michael was asked, I think, under. Freedom of Information Act for documents about this. And one of the things was the, the letter that I wrote um, adv advising about the flat. And at the end of it, I had said, it must have reached the point where the flat had been bought. I had said, you will need to do this, that and the other because it was unfurnished. And I'm going to be there next year. I'm quite willing to move in and do this for you. And Michael scored all this out. And then the television people must have got another copy oh, of it. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. they were able to say, this is what he yeah. scored out. Yeah. 
And so this was me trying to get into the flat. But again, you see, of course it would have been convenient for me, but it would have been convenient for them as well. All these things had to be done. And when I wasn't there to do them, they actually had to pay a woman in London, I know who it was, it was Beth Wilson. They paid her to supervise the flat and to do all the purchases, uh, which I was going to do for them. But you see, this was presented on television as, as um, me being self-serving again. I was um, deeply aggrieved by all that, and that was why I resigned from Penn. I said, Penn owes me an apology, which I know I'll never get. Uh, when I get the apology, I'll rejoin. I'll never get it, so I'll never rejoin, and I never have. Um, I was deeply aggrieved. There's one other thing that's interesting to me, that when all this was going on, I made one last, attended one last meeting of the Auckland branch of PEN, in which I made a statement presenting my position and explaining what I'd done, why I'd done it, and why I was leaving Penn. And it happened that at that time, Ian McEwan, the British novelist, was visiting, and he was staying with John Craner. And John Craner, I think, was the chairman of the Auckland branch. He came along, and he heard me make, make this statement. And I've since met McEwan lots of times because I know Craig Rainwell and he's a neighbour of Craig Rain's, they're old buddies and he's often there. And I never meet him without him remembering again this meeting where his sympathies were, I mean he just thought the, the New Zealand writers were being insane, he couldn't understand it. He thought my explanation was entirely um, satisfactory and he couldn't understand why the, the writers were doing what they were doing. Well, anyway, the consequence was that there was the flat. Naturally, New Zealand House in London don't like any further responsibilities, so they would prefer not to have it rather than to have it. Um, the government changed. The government was able to say, well, the writers were never keen about this anyway. Um, we'll, we'll sell it. Okay, um, <clears throat> that covers it very um, adequately. More than adequately, And that sure. was the point at which you, as you say, over, over which you resigned mm. and you didn't rejoin. Mm. No, okay. No, there's Come another on. thing I thought of in the night, mm. and I can't remember the details, and it, you, you might remember them better than I do, and because you and I disagreed about, about it, um, but it was to do with Penn's policy on whether the... Uh, literary fund should go from internal affairs into the Arts Council. No, and we didn't disagree on that. We disagreed about the Authors Fund. Ah, uh, the Authors Fund. You are talking about the Authors Fund. The Authors Fund is yes. what I mean. Yes, yes. 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 And um, I think we had an exchange in the listener, or I must have said something in the listener. Oh, listen, before I go on to this, can I just say one other thing? When, because Fiona may have said this, there was somehow the subject about the London flat came up briefly in the TLS. I, I gave a lecture in Germany which somehow touched on it. It was picked up in the Times Literary Supplement and immediately in came a furious letter from Fiona attacking what I'd said about the London flat and explaining uh, what she claimed was a New Zealand writer's position. And one of the things she said was that this was a terrible thing because it used up most of the year's budget for writers. You know, now, of, of course, it yeah. was entirely separate. It was, but a slush fund it was yes, it didn't affect the amount that was spent on writers at all. Okay, now the other thing was, um, I must have said somewhere that I was uneasy about 
the authors fund going into um, the Arts Council. I, I, can, I can tell you how to mention the listener. I was quoted in the listener in the bookmarks column, which they still had then, as saying it was regrettable that in the first year in which the Authors Fund had gone into the Arts Council, the payments for writers were down, mm. because we had been given an assurance that they would not be down. Now, what in fact had happened, of course, was it was exactly the same amount of money that year, yeah, yeah. but because there were more the number of books, yeah. yeah. So you responded to that. Right. And you responded more or less in the terms of saying that you had not thought in the first instance that it should have gone to the yeah. Arts Council. And then you wrote a letter saying that neither you nor anyone you'd spoke to about it could recall that I had opposed. Yes. And, 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 and not only that, after I sent that letter and was published, I found the letter you wrote to me saying that you supported it. Oh, right. And I have to, I will uh, send you a copy of that just for, uh, yeah. for the record. Uh, well, I'm glad I didn't pursue it if that's the case. <laughs> Because I also found uh, the documentation with my exchanges with two ministers, Graham Lee and, and Doug Graham, in which my recollection, now I'm recalling what I found, but I remember that I found more, um, that I had considerable anxiety about it as a policy, and that Although it was PN policy, I wasn't, sure, you know, I wasn't sure that it was good policy. Anyway, what I didn't did, what pursue... What you said in your letter to me was that you had just had a meeting with Doug Graham and that you had supported the PN recommendation that the fund go to the Arts Council. Oh, yeah, but you see, wasn't, I, that, wasn't that what I was delegated to do? See, I think there might have been a difference between what... What, I, felt. what I personally felt and, and, and what I was delegated yeah. to do. And the reason I didn't pursue it any further than the listener was precisely because I thought this n it's no good having writers going on and on, batting back and forth, you did, you didn't, you know. Okay. Uh, so I dropped it. Can I tell you, I think we made a wrong... I think both the options we were considering at the time were actually not the right ones. In retrospect, I think we should have gone to the National Library which is a strange thing to say, but they were entirely neutral and they were prepared to administer it. Oh, yeah. And I don't think any of the problems that subsequently developed would have happened if the National Library had been administering it. But, no. but that's yeah. you know, what and it might have been. Yeah, and also it always seemed to me a pity that whoever it was decided that internal affairs should be more or less dismantled yeah. because it was a very useful department yeah. uh, and it, it had actually done the job very well. You've been listening to a December 2000 interview with Christian Carl Stead and Michael King on the New Zealand Society of Authors Oral History Podcast. We're going to take a short break over the Christmas and summer season and we'll be back in the new year. To make sure you don't miss an episode, remember to subscribe to the podcast on SoundCloud or wherever you listen. This podcast was produced by Elizabeth Kirkby MacLeod for the New Zealand Society of Authors with funding from Creative New Zealand. Noturno by Ottorino Respighi, which you are listening to now, is performed by Justin Bird. The audio was digitised and provided by the Alexander Turnbull Library. From all of us at the New Zealand Society of Authors, have a safe and Merry Christmas. I'm Karen Hay and this was a New Zealand Society of Authors oral history podcast. Mm -hmm.